spiritual journey, I want to hear from those who have taken this path before me. This podcast focuses on them and listening to their stories, uninterrupted. My name is Hibba Masood, and I invite you to reflect on the trajectories of their lives and the guidance and blessings provided by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala along that journey. The daughter of Caribbean immigrants who converted to Islam, Ustada Nurdi Knight began her own journey to seek knowledge at the Mecca Center in New York City. She completed classes at the center offered to beginners by Imam Amin Muhammad. She went on to study privately with him, along with other sisters. She then began supplementing these in-person classes with online courses from Seeker's Guidance. But she wanted more. She craved a deeper understanding of prophetic character and knew she needed to live in a place where Islam was not just studied, but lived. So she left to study in Jordan with Sheikh Nu Keller, Sheikh Um Saha, and other scholars. In this episode, Ustad the Nerdly Knight discusses the importance of seeking knowledge as a woman and the value of having female teachers. She also talks about the beauty of the community in Jordan and how impactful Suhba is when studying. She returned to the United States where her bold and outspoken blog by the fig and the olive has become a must read for many women of our generation. She has also authored 40 hadiths of our mother Aisha, a collection of hadiths narrated by Aisha that showcase her close relationship with the Prophet, peace be upon him. So I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, Nina East Flatbush. So this is a community filled with Caribbean immigrants, which my parents are also Caribbean immigrants. And that is where I grew up. That community in and of itself wasn't religious. It was mostly non-Muslim community where I grew up. But in the neighboring borough, then, no, not, well, not borough. Um, I'm forgetting how it's, what they call it now, but uh, neighborhood, I suppose. And that side, then we would go there to go to the masjid. So there were two masjids there that we would attend. And so alhamdulillah, we had our religious community there. And um, yeah, so we grew up in that Caribbean community and then we would commute not too far, about a 40 minute bus ride to go to the masjid. Um, So when did you realize Islam and religion were gonna be kind of this important part of your life? Alhamdulillah, I grew up Muslim. So my mom and dad, they both converted to Islam. My dad converted when he was about 19 and my mom converted in her young 30s. And so I grew up in a Muslim household. So when I was born, then both of my parents were Muslim. And I grew up in a Muslim household. And so I first had the example, of course, of my parents, the knowledge that they had to seek to decide to become Muslim. And then my eldest sister, she had really taken an interest in studying Islam. She would go she was in California for a little while. She was a part of the early group of, before it was Zaytuna College, when it was Sheikh uh, Hamza and Imam Zaid and all of these scholars in this community. And she really took advantage of that. And she was really active in the community. She would go to Isnan, Iknan, all this stuff. And sometimes she would take us along. So that was my, so that this is also the first person in my family to travel to an Islamic or Muslim majority country. And so that was my first example of someone actively seeking knowledge. And so when I was young, of course, I, I saw that example. And of course, within my family, we read Quran and Sarah and all of that. So my interest to study, it really grew after after either after college or towards the end of college because I really just wanted to grow my faith for myself independently. I think when you're born into a Muslim family, alhamdulillah, you inherit 
inherent Islam. Um, but at some point you have to figure out what your practice is going to be for yourself independently. So I really wanted to study. I started studying fiqh um, and then Aikida and it, it kind of naturally progressed. I found an Islamic center and started taking classes there and just taking more and more classes and did some independent study with one of the teachers there. And then I traveled and I went to Jordan for a bit and studied there and then coming back home and, and still keeping up my studies as best as possible. So alhamdulillah, it was a natural progression, but it really started with my interest in wanting to have an Islam that was, that made sense to me, that was for me and my practice and not simply something that was something my parents had decided to do. Um, amazing. Um, so when you kind of uh, had this desire to seek knowledge, like how did you choose and, and find places to study? And The first thing I did, which, you know, typical, <laughs> is to go on YouTube <laughs> and start watching lectures there. So um, that was the first thing. And then one of the lectures I watched, it was Imam Zay talking about Shafi Fiqh. And I'd never really heard much about Fiqh. I didn't really know what this was. So I was looking for where could I learn about Jaffe Fit. And there was something, so I had started, that was one of, one of the things that propelled me, but I had also started to, on this journey that first started with YouTube, I started attending more lectures and more conferences. And I remember there was one conference that I did where it was a three-day conference. It was intensive and it was about different types of Akita and Fik. It was just a lot of different things thrown into this three-day lecture. And at the end of it, I felt, you know, I don't think I'm ever going to do this again because it was so exhaustive. And I knew that I wanted to learn in a more formulaic way, in a way that made more sense to me. I didn't want to have everything th thrown at me. I wanted to start with the basics. And so I had, I was looking for studying Shafi fiqh. I was looking for even just studying Quran. And so once I Googled it, Hamida, then I found this center. And it's fortunate because, you know, there are all sorts of places that teach Quran and many may just teach Quran alone. But this place, they were teaching fiqh and tisawaf and akita and all of that. And the funny thing is, the first time I went, I was going for Quran recitation. It was in the winter. And it was maybe 40 minutes from where I live, 40 minutes to an hour from where I lived. And it was in the winter time. So the first time I went, like, I really want to do this. I want to study. And I never went again to that class um this Quran class because you know I made excuses for myself oh it's cold it's so far etc but alhamdulillah something brought me back a year later and that's when I really started to study so I think that it was it's difficult to say exactly because someone else could do a Google search and not find places, right? So mm -hmm. there is some level of fortune, alhamdulillah, barakah, in being able to find that center in particular, especially to find a place that's teaching you the basics, step one, step two, step three. A lot of the times in the classes, classes in our massages, then, you know, they're topic-based. And so even though you can learn, you don't get, it's not the same as, you know, when you go to school, academia, then you first are going to learn psychology 101, then 102, then et cetera. Um, so I really wanted that kind of experience with Islam and everything that's kind of naturally led me to the other thing. So I would even say if someone's thinking of, wants to seek knowledge, find what is most accessible to you and just follow that and exhaust whatever you have. And naturally more doors will open up. And in one practical way is that when you begin to study, well, then you have teachers and that teacher can lead you to other teachers or other programs or places you should go to study. 
um, even my going to Jordan, I had taken, I'm not even sure if I'd taken a class yet, but I was again, looking, you know, studying Islam and, um, this, this online program came up and I listened to a lecture they had. And so I learned about this sheikh that was in Jordan. And so eventually knowing about him would lead me to go to Jordan and, and try to study there. So, um, alhamdulillah, like everything led to the other things. So that's why it's so important to just get started. And then you never know what you'll find out or who you'll meet that will lead you to the next step you want to go to. A perfect segue. Um, so you kind of said what took you to Jordan, but, but can you describe what it was like there? What stood out to you? And um, I mean, you, you saw this online class, but what really kind of propelled you to go overseas? Mm-hmm. So I've been studying in the States, maybe, it's so hard to say because different things get kind of mixed up in my head, but <laughs> I think it was somewhere between two and four years, which I know is such a, a huge range, but somewhere between that. And I felt like I not only wanted to study further my studies, I also wanted to have the lived experience of being in a Muslim community, mm-hmm. of knowing what it could be like to live the knowledge. Because when you're studying here in America, alhamdulillah, there are great programs online and in the States, But one thing we don't really have yet is the community, right? So you're learning, but you still are living in a, not just a non-Muslim society, but an irreligious society. And so it's tough to really practice in full. And you certainly Mm -hmm. don't get as many examples. Um, You get it here and there, but you don't get the example of a community. What is it like to live in a prophetic community, an Islamic community, a community of people who have knowledge and are practicing it. So I really longed for that. Um, Before I went to Jordan, I should also say that the funny thing is I never really had the desire to travel. And so one thing that allowed that door to open for me, Hamnina, is that my sister moved to the Emirates. And so she moved there with my niece and nephew, who I was really close to. And so I said, well, I have to go and visit them. (laughs) So that took me there. And then learning about this program, I said, you know, why don't I just go to Jordan? Which is such a funny thing because, you know, alhamdulillah, this is really Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala opening these doors because I could have never foreseen myself going to Emirates or going to Jordan, especially going to Jordan by myself. But I did, alhamdulillah. And being there, one of the fortunate things about Jordan is that, um, I don't know if this is a politically correct term anymore, I'm not sure, but it's kind of like a second world country, I'd say, which is that it is relatively modern while still having a lot of the old world in it. So it's not a... I mean, there are areas, right? But it's not a poor country inherently. You live there, you can get a nice apartment, you can go to the mall. Really, you can live a Western life when you are there. So I think not having to deal with that culture shock was really, really valuable in giving me some ease and comfort that I can be in this completely new foreign place and be okay being in the community, this, this Muslim community in particular, I felt so fortunate because there you got to really live your Islam and see other people living their Islam. So when I was in the States, I was going every weekend, going to these classes, mostly on Sundays, sometimes Saturday and Sunday. And then there was one sheikh that I would try to study with independently as well. But here in, in Jordan, I would not here, I'm not there anymore, but there in Jordan, I was completely immersed. So there were always classes happening. You could always reach a, a sheikh for guidance. You could see Muslims around you who also came for the purpose of studying the deen and practicing their faith and really also safeguarding their faith. Mm-hmm. Um, 
in this community. And it was that level of camaraderie and just that level of seeking good that everyone around you wants. And that's not to say it's like some kind of paradise. Every community with human beings is going to have its issues. But for me, that was so important to be in a community of people who were striving and who were seeking knowledge and living that knowledge. Um, and, And one of the things about being in that community as well is that it wasn't just about um, the more theoretical knowledge, which is not, I'm not sure how to put it exactly, but when I was in the States before I went to Jordan and I was studying Fik and Akita, those were the two major subjects. And maybe I took one class in to sew of, and I felt like my experience in Jordan, it was a bit more holistic, probably because of living in the community as well, but also because Tisawaf was so immersed. So there was Tisawaf, there was Fik, there was Aikida, there was Tafsir, um, so many different classes um, going on. And then also living in this Muslim community and everyone trying to be a reminder to the other person to be their best self. It was, it was really such a blessing. And, you know, I would definitely recommend if someone wants to study the dean i think that jordan is a really great place for westerners because you have that level of comfort with the living standard and then you have the experience of being around um muslims there so alhamdulillah i I really um loved being there and and experiencing that um sorry just for people that haven't been there to the specific community. Can you just describe it a little bit, like how close-knit it is, and like if you could just mm-hmm. give it like a brief description. Okay, so one thing about Jordan is that it is very hilly, or maybe you'd say mountainous. I'm not, I'm not sure which would be the more correct term, um, but that was definitely one thing that stood out. You're always walking up a hill or down a hill. <laughs> And one thing that, I'm not like you get used to it, but it's kind of scary at first because there will be um, some streets where essentially, <laughs> it's not funny to say, but essentially you could just fall off a hill <laughs> because, you know, there's no fencing, there's no anything. You make the wrong move. Um, you, you could, you know, have a very long way to go. <laughs> so that was kind of one interesting thing to get used to was that environment. Weather-wise, it's basically the, the same kind of weather I was used to in New York. We have, they had winter there, they had summer, so it varied in between that. Um, the community itself that I was in, so it's not as if all of Jordan is like this community, but this particular community, um, it's students from, mostly from Western countries, and the sheikh is Western, though there are different shayuk, but the the main primary sheikh is Western. So it's different Western people who are coming here to either study their dean or even just to live. Some people come there and they just live there, you know, that's it. Um, the community is very close then, I would say, because... Alhamdulillah, everyone is there and wanting to learn from the shayut. So, of course, that connects us. But also, you see people all the time. Like, that that was a beautiful thing about just the community aspect as well. You're seeing people usually every day or a couple times a week because of the classes. And then <laughs> one thing that I, Alhamdulillah, that I thought was really really nice there and really an experience I didn't have because I didn't grow up in a Muslim community in terms of my immediate community, then you visit people all the time. You go to someone's house and you have dinner, you have lunch, you check up on them. And it's just a beautiful experience because everyone is Muslim. If you need something, you don't have to feel shy to go and knock on someone's door and and ask of them because they are your fellow Muslim brother. And and again, everyone's there trying to better themselves. Also, the shayuk there being available for advice, that also, I think, is um, 
is such a great resource to have. There are so many of us that we may have questions in, about Islam or just questions about our life and need advice. And, you know, it's, it's hard to go to the local imam because they're busy. But when you live in a community like that, then the shayuk are so accessible. You see them all the time. And so that was also a, a, a great blessing. And having gatherings too. Often there would be gatherings of having a maulid or vicar or people doing classes in their houses. Uh, that was actually one thing that I loved and one thing I got to experience there in Jordan was being around so many female shoes that I didn't have that experience in America and being able to access them and a lot of them having these classes in their home and, and even that giving a different feel, right? Where you can have some level of comfort and for knowledge to just be a part of your life, not sort of be this thing that you do once a week or even a couple times a week or but then you go home and then you go into the real world no in this place where it's a community it's a part of your life so the person you're learning with today is sitting beside you in a class tomorrow is at a gathering the next day so that beautiful sense of having just the lived experience of being muslim within a muslim community um I, alhamdulillah, I am really grateful for that experience. Thank you so much for that um, beautiful description. Um, can you talk about some of the teachers you had, um, both here locally and there, that had the biggest impact on you and what you kind of learned from them, um, you know, obviously in the classroom, but also just by observing them? Yeah, that's, alhamdulillah, that's a really good question and, and something really valuable to reflect on. And here in the States, then, there are two main teachers that I learned from, besides all the lectures that I went to, but in terms of some, like, a longer, long-term mm -hmm. education. So, um, there one chief that I learned about the wives of the prophet. That was something that really stood out to me. First we were studying, I can't quite remember, but it was something related to women in Islam. And then we started doing the wives of the prophet. And that had a major impact on me because alhamdulillah, I would end up you know, later writing the book, 40 Hadith of Aisha. And it just, it had such an impact on me to see what women had done in their religion. And it just wasn't something spoken about enough. So to see the different roles that women played, oh, one of the classes, we covered a book called um, Marriage and Divorce, which is more of a historical um, text. And it was valuable because I think that unfortunately there are some very limiting notions about women in Islam and women's mm -hmm. roles. And even just exploring that book and then exploring the different roles of the wives of the prophet. So there was some, then I got to see just even myself as a Muslim woman in a different way and what I could contribute. And not just in terms of sort of, technically because in a technical sense as western muslims we kind of do what we want to do right because we live in a western society so in a sense i didn't feel limited i knew i could go out and be an academic or be in career or, or do what i wanted to do in that sense but to take that class then there was a realization that that was also part of islamic history it's not as if you're going against the grain if you want to study or you want to have a business or you want to have a career or be a wife and a mother or be a wife or not have children, etc. Those people existed in our Islamic history. So to have that connection to them and just be for that to that kind of world, those examples to be open to me that there are just so many ways to be a Muslim woman and to contribute and that have already be done, been done 
that was extremely valuable to me. And then another teacher, I learned Fik, and that was the bulk of my studies. I learned with him, Fik and Akita. And that was really powerful. I mean, if I were to think about what I know, which is, of course, still very little, then that's probably at least 60, 70% of it. I learned with that sheikh from the classes that I took with him, so the independent study I did with him. And that just opened my eyes to this entire world of Islamic knowledge. And just a more, the only word I can think of is formulaic. I know there's a better <laughs> word. But um, just being able to take this step-by-step process and realizing how intellectually rich the Islamic tradition was, that it's not just about faith, which is crucial, but it's also about knowledge and it's also about thinking. And it, and most importantly, it's not about blind faith. And that was so valuable to me for that door to be open. In Jordan, it was really, alhamdulillah, all of the shayikh were, were wonderful. The Hunchik that I learned um, a lot from there, alhamdulillah, then what I found valuable about him was the, especially, so I went to Jordan twice. I went first after undergraduate, and then I went again for a longer period of time after graduate school. So especially after having gone to graduate school and sort of being more in that academic frame of mind, but then now wanting to pursue Islamic studies, it was so valuable to learn from him because when he would teach, he would bring in examples from the academic research or Western books as well as the Islamic tradition. And for me, that really helped to have this more holistic approach to faith and to knowledge and not to compartmentalize. Because I think a lot of us, including me, when we go to school, it's like we put on our academic hat. We sort of put the Islamic hat to the side and we put on the academic hat. And then we go home and we take off the, you know, academic hat or we put on the Islamic hat. And we kind of feel like the two should never meet. And what I was able to learn and absorb from him is that you can think about these Western issues through an Islamic lens and that you can utilize this Western research and and more modern books to further some of the points that you want to talk about in Islam, that the two don't have to be divorced from each other. You know, there's this um, tradition of thinking about like the East and the West are at odds and, or even Islam in the West in particular are at odds. And it's not fundamentally true. There are some things within the Western tradition that are at odds with Islam, and there are some things that aren't. And as Muslims in the West, I think it's very valuable that we find and utilize and hone in on the things that are um, not, not just palatable. Palatable is one thing, but the things that work with Islam, that are cohesive with Islam, that make sense in Islam and not feel like we have to sort of turn against everything Western or blame Western or see the West as only this non-Muslim, irreligious society. It is that, but within that, there's still good and there's still things that we as Muslim um, can find truth in. We know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he gave truth to all kinds of people, not just Muslims. And so there's knowledge that can be found everywhere. So I, I definitely absorbed that from him. There's one Sheikha there that I tend to think about her words and her advice a lot. I found, I found like she was so beneficial in terms of her knowledge, but also just her life advice like I think about there's just some things that she said that I think Mm -hmm. about a lot so one of the things that she said was that um we can get so caught up in the story of our life 
that we are the main character and, you know, everyone else is a supporting character. And then there are all these events that are happening. And we just get so caught up in that. And we can, you know, forget this reality of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, of being with him, turning to him, going towards him, and just sort of busy ourselves in this day-to-day life. And it just, it's such a valuable reminder to me that everything that is, happening it's like that's one level of reality but the deeper level of reality is our relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala um one thing there's just so many things that she said that I I can't you know really think about another thing that she said that sticks with me that I think about a lot is that she said one of the one of the reasons one of the things that causes a lot of problems in our life is that we (laughs) We get upset, we get angry when people essentially do what they've always done. So (laughs) we have different expectations of people that aren't based on their past behavior. So we want things to go this way. We want people to be different. And we're constantly angry that they're not who we want them to be. And, you know, that just really stuck with me. And that really helps me in a lot of situations where, you know, in the end, we, we don't mold people. We don't mold their decisions, their character. And so it's really valuable to take a step back from that. And subhanAllah, so many stories that she told, like she was, she would have a class in like the main, um, it was, it's called a, a zawiya, essentially like a, learning center with Vicar and, and that and other things happen there. Um, so she would teach there, but she would also teach in her house. And um, it was just really valuable. And then I sat with her a couple of times to ask her advice. I think learning Islam and being able to have that level of comfort with your teacher was just so valuable to me. It was so valuable. Um, I don't know what it is, but there's something about studying outside of the academic setting. There's something about your teacher being available, about seeing them as a real human being. It's not just, oh, we go to this class and we learn from them and then, you know, move on and see them at the next class. No, you see them in the lecture at the vicar vicar session, you see them walking down the street you see them you know it it's so valuable to me and you get to also see their mannerisms how are they with people there's one the last incident i'll mention i had come to her house i wanted to get some advice from her and <laughs> i remember she always wore black and niqab and hijab and all that and I remember coming to her house and she had on like this really you know beautiful colorful clothing um and then she you know she just told me oh you know I'll, I'll be back in a second and then she went she changed and you know had on her abaya and then she had um made me some tea <laughs> and like that experience um it was those little things that were so beautiful because without teaching you know she's teaching me ada by her example of and allowing me to be in her home and um even though you know i would wait you know a long time to to be able to speak with her because she's the teacher and i know she's busy her still you know letting me know i don't know you know just letting me know okay it'll be a few more minutes you know um having that that ada that kindness and then even seeing her with her beautiful clothes inside her home, like ideally as Muslims, that's what we should do as well. Beautify ourselves inside the home and be more modest outside the home. Um, and her serving me tea, like even though I'm the, the student um, being in her house and her serving me tea and also just giving me her time. Like she's of course a busy person, but giving me her time to ask her questions and, that experience, like that's living Islam. That's not just, you know, it goes so beyond a lecture. And that, I just found that so beautiful that, that I could have that kind of 
um, relationship and get to see Shuyuk outside of just the classroom setting and learn from their life examples beyond um, what they taught. Can you talk about um, what it was like learning from female scholars? That's not an opportunity a lot of people may necessarily have. Mm-hmm. Alhamdulillah, it was such a blessing. Before I had gone to Jordan, then, as I mentioned, I didn't really know female Shayuk. I think there was one, one female, I don't know if she was a chef, but one speaker <laughs> that had come to the masjid before and given us a lecture. Um, so being there and seeing female shayuk, for one, when you see the example, then even though we know it intellectually, then you get to see in practice that Islamic knowledge is not just for men. This is not just a male endeavor. It's for everyone. Everyone can pursue it. Also, the further access. So for one, a lot of these classes were taught in the teacher's homes, and some of them had young children. I I know that one of the teachers that taught in their home, I know one had um, young children at the time. So that's something that's more difficult in the West, or I should say typically in the West when we want to seek knowledge or we're trying to study, we're going to an academic setting. So there are rules for the academic setting. You wouldn't bring your child there, and so that would limit a mother being able to teach or students being able to learn from her. So that was the at-home setting made it more accessible in in various ways. Um, One of the things that, so having that example, one of the things I remember that it's so illustrative of how beneficial it was to have a female student to learn from as once when we were in um, Ms. Ustedla's house and she was teaching thick and we were going over menstruation and the classes on, we were doing a, a thick book and the classes on menstruation, they maybe lasted three or four sessions simply because as we're all women in this class and we have this female teacher. So we all had different questions, you know, what about this and what about that? And what about this exception? And what about, you know, different rulings related to this? Whereas I had learned this subject before from a male teacher, but it was in a mixed setting. There were men and women studying. It's a male teacher. So even if you have a question, you're not going to ask because you're going to feel embarrassed. You're also going to feel like, well, I don't want to waste the men's time because they don't need to know this necessarily, though, you know, they still should. But in the setting where it's just women, then you can ask the questions that are important to you. Um, there was another teacher that we were learning from And this was, again, to me, an example of the importance of a female scholar. Because one aspect is that, and it's not not always sexism, but sometimes there's just a natural bias that we have, or even naturally details that we're going to pay more attention to. So there was another, there was a sheikha who was teaching about marriage, and learning, and again, I had learned this topic before with another chant. Learning it with her, she told us about what you can put in your contract as a woman that you can put that you get the right to divorce and these different stuff you can put in your contract if you want to. That for a lot of women may find that to be a good protection for them. And, um, that was something that I felt like because she was a woman talking to women, then she could spend more time on or even feel the need to spend more time on or even to think about because she knows the different situations that women get into. Um, Another thing that was valuable is in asking advice, like I mentioned, to be able to act woman specific advice mm-hmm. about um you know your life as a woman to another woman was really valuable 
um, subhanAllah, it was one other thing, but, oh, yes, okay, you know, we, there was, um, you know, inshallah ta'ala, it will decrease, but it probably hasn't gone away, this whole issue of the quote-unquote shaky crush and, and all these issues that can happen with female students and mm-hmm. male shayuk, and of course, that's eradicated if you simply have female shayuk. And that can be one of the most crucial things because as a student, you do want to be able to go to your sheikh for advice. Mm -hmm. But when it's a man, that relationship can end up going in the wrong direction because you naturally are going to get close to someone that you are able to seek advice from and they give you good advice and you know it's a beneficial relationship you're naturally going to become close to a person like that and when it's a man that can lead to um different issues um whereas when it's a woman obviously then that relationship can be really close and it can be physically close in terms of you can go to her house you can you don't have to not wear hijab, but, you know, you can feel comfortable mm-hmm. um, being um, yourself around this person. And that was just, even, subhanAllah, in the, the Sheikha's class, this would happen in different times, like, um, in the Sheikha's class, and there was another Sheikha too, but she didn't teach us often. Sometimes we would be so stuffed in the room, so we're sitting so close together <laughs> because so many people you know, want to come in and, and hear her lesson. Well, you know, that couldn't happen <laughs> if it was a male check or if it was a mixed room. So that level of access is so, is so valuable. And I, I think a lot of the times, um, you know, we're having this conversation about access and women need to have more access to scholars but the reality is if it's a male scholar it has to be limited because of male female relationships so one of the biggest things we need to do is cultivate more female scholars so that that relationship can exist um because ideally we should all have shayuk in our life that we can turn to if we need help if we have questions um and and that's a lot easier if we have more women who are seeking knowledge what was it coming back? What was it like coming back from Amman um, into this, as you've said, a religious society? What were you bringing back with you, and, and what kind of do you miss most about the community there? Yeah, when I first came back, it was honestly a very emotional experience for me. <laughs> um, I cried when I first came back because I had been in this kind of haven. Again, no place is perfect. But I've been in this kind of haven for a Muslim, especially a Muslim coming from the West. And when I came back, you know, I'd gotten so used to wearing the black abaya all the times. So when I came back, I had on my black abaya, and it was summertime. And of course, everyone around me is in short shorts and tank tops, and it's just like, oh, I want to lie back, <laughs> back to this. And uh, so that was tough. That was very shocking at first and you know I think I think it's difficult because it it takes a lot it would take a lot to cultivate those kind of communities in the west I think some people are doing it but that takes a lot of effort so you really you have yourself and you have your family um but you really just have yourself because when you're coming back, then you're not necessarily on the same page with your family or have the same goals or interests. And so I think it's a tough experience. Um, but as I mentioned with, with one Sheikh that I studied from and Alhamdulillah, they record um, a lot of stuff. So I listen to a lot of the things that he still puts out. And then that balance that I was offered just in him giving a lecture and mentioning modern research or uh, a text, um, you know, a, a modern book or, and also combining that with Islamic knowledge, it was so valuable to me. And that's, that's a lot of what I try to bring um, to my blog and to my work in general is a combination of both so that as Muslims, when we're in the West, I think it's really valuable for us not to div- not to ever divorce ourselves 
from our faith. And so that means whether you're at work or at school or reading something or looking at something, you're always viewing it through the Muslim lens, through the Islamic lens. And you're doing so in a way that isn't always in absolutes, right? You're trying mm -hmm. to take the good and leave the bad. And so that's, that's what I've tried to do um, in my life and the work that I do because I, it's a tough thing because in one sense, I do think there's a lot of value for an individual to just say, you know, why live in this Western society that's, that's not religious and, you know, more and more God just kind of fades in the background of, the, of American life. I do think that it can be a solution for the individual to, to just say, you know, I'm just going to move to a Muslim country and be around Muslims and forget about this. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think that we should necessarily be that hopeless. You know, as Muslims, we do have allies and they may not even always know that they're allies, but we do have people who agree with us. There are people who think that modesty is valuable. There are people who think that spirituality is valuable. There are in fact so many movements that we can hone onto as, or hone into <laughs> as Muslims and be, I don't know, that we can kind of, I don't want to say attach Islam, but look at it and say, okay, what is the Islamic point of view? So something like meditation and mindfulness. That is something that's really important in our society right now. And it's from a secular lens. Well, we also have these concepts in Islam. So how can we have these discussions with people and also bring in what Islam has to say about it? So I just say that to say there are many aspects of our society that aren't anti-Islam. So how can we work with them or work in them and bring them inshallah ta'ala towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or at the very least show them that these positive things that are part of society are also, are also part of Islam um, I think that in America just like in any other society where Islam has come then eventually you have to cultivate an Islam that feels culturally relevant to the the society that it's in and i think that uh, i think that we're doing that slowly but surely as muslims and it it has been done because alhamdulillah there had there were prominent muslims who are part of the civil rights movement for example mm -hmm. so it has been done in the past what it needs to be further cultivated that islam is about you know social justice and environmentalism and um you know, treating people fairly, ethics and animal rights and all of these good things in society that as Muslims we should latch on to and say, yeah, we're about that as well. Let's help those people doing that good work. And um, also having room to critique some of the things happening and some of the more negative things happening in society. And I would add to that, um, I think it's really crucial for Muslims not to feel othered in society, um, especially in American society. We're fortunate that if you're a citizen, you're a citizen. That, that's all it takes to be an American. So your voice is just as valuable as anyone else's voice. And so we should speak up. We shouldn't feel like we have to fit in and, um, yeah, so, so but those are a few things that I sort of taken from that experience and tried to bring with me here. Um, as you mentioned, you, you wrote a book, um, 40 Hadith of Our Mother Aisha. Um, can you just talk about um, where this idea came from and kind of what went into the process? So I was taking a class, I don't know what the class was on, if it was hadith or thick, but the sheikh told us about the reward of gathering 40 hadith. 
and I don't have um, that hadith in front of me, so I don't want to repeat it from memory. But essentially, that there is a reward in that the Prophet told us there's a reward in gathering 40 hadith. And so when I heard that, I kind of thought, you know, wow, that's such a quote unquote easy thing to do. And um, I should do that, you know. And then I also thought about learning about Aisha the little bit that I knew I was so impressed with her and her life but I also knew that I really wanted to learn more I felt like as great as people said that she was then there just wasn't a lot of conversation about her in mm-hmm. in detail and I really wanted to know more about this great woman's life and so I'll say that the very first iteration of the book was just literally gathering 40 hadith, 40 hadith in English, and put it in a PDF, and then eventually, you know, put it as a, a book. But later on, I thought, you know, why don't I put real effort into this? Like, this can really be something that is important and valuable outside of myself, because at the time, I had um, first in the PDF and just put it on my blog. People could download it. And then I thought, you know what? I can put it in book form. And so I put it in book form and, um, you know, people got it that way as well. But I thought, you know, if I really put effort into this, this can be something of value beyond, inshallah ta'ala, getting some of this reward, hopefully, for gathering the hadith. So that's when I decided to do some research on her life. And, you know, Aisha, she's said to be, the Prophet has said that she is the most beloved to him. And so there was something that felt really beautiful about having this connection of compiling these hadith and researching her life and having this connection of the love of the Prophet through showing um this love and respect for his wife, for the woman that he loved, and for him by preserving these hadith um, and preserving it just in the sense of alhamdulillah, whenever you do something new, it gives new people a chance to read it and to learn about um, both Lady Aisha and the hadith in the book because it is it's a compilation, it's 40 hadith, so I certainly didn't come up with the hadith, of course. Um, And then it's a biography, so I certainly didn't create her biography, right? (laughs) Um, So doing the research and compiling it was a way to almost just combine or, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I don't know, Allah Alam, but sort of, hopefully get a renewed interest in the person of Lady Aisha and how from whatever whatever few people I could reach. And so that was a really valuable experience for me. Um when it came to the the hadith that I use in the book, you know, hadith are you have to be careful with hadith because some hadith need further explanation, right? Mm -hmm. So I really wanted to use hadith that are valuable to people on first reading, that didn't need much more detail, though we can always get more knowledge when we have the commentary. But I wanted hadith that were easy to digest, so that was really important for me. And I also wanted to put hadith that showed Aisha and has closeness to the Prophet mm-hmm. so hadith that would show that she was a part of different aspects of his life and someone that he confided in and then I wanted it to be somewhat chronological so if you read the book then you know the first hadith that I include is when the Prophet gets um, his first revelation and then the last hadith I include is when the Prophet is passing. Um, peace and blessings be upon him. So 
that was important to me. And then I wanted the biography to be a good overview, short, but a good overview for someone who maybe like me at the time didn't know much about the life of Lady Aisha. And so this would provide them with a fuller story of her life mm-hmm. and hopefully also give them interest to want to learn more about her life. Very beautiful project, Mashallah. Um, and then you also That's have this uh, really awesome blog by the fig and the olive. Um, and how did, how did that start? And, and what was your kind of goal and vision for that? So it started, and thank you for your kind words. <laughs> it started in, started after I, graduated from graduate school and you know the first thing that I really wanted to do my primary reason for starting it was actually that I wanted to keep in touch with psychology I wanted to stay engaged with psychology because I just got my degree degree in psychology and I was immediately going to go to Jordan for it was supposed to be one year ended up being two years and so I didn't want to mentally get cut off from all that I had just learned and so that was the first reason was to stay engaged with psychology what it became Hamnina was a means for me to do what I felt was important and that I've mentioned a couple times and that is to present just a more holistic not even a more holistic Islam, but a more holistic way of viewing and being in the world. So I have on the blog some social commentary, for instance. And there was once where I was writing about an issue and Hamidah, someone had shared it on their page and a non-Muslim had commented and they were saying, you know, why are you even talking about this issue? What does it have to do with you? And I found a lot of value in having to answer that question. I don't think I I spoke to them, but even for myself, because there is this sense, unfortunately, I think post 9-11, that Muslims should just be quiet and go along to get along. Mm -hmm. And we should just prove how American we are by talking about how much we like baseball and apple pie and um, some of the more superficial aspects of of our lives as Muslims. But in writing social commentary and engaging with the world, I think that a part of what we're trying to do is say that Muslims have a voice, that Islam has a place, that Islam is always relevant to the conversation, Mm -hmm. that we have a right to speak up and speak out and stand up for not just our values, but for good values. I mean, one of the most important things to me is that as Muslims, we have to realize Islam is for everyone. And some of us have been fortunate that at this point in our life, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allowed us to accept his message. But Islam is for everyone. It's for humanity. The Prophet came as a mercy to the world. And so it's not like our secret, right? (laughs) So when the world is going through with difficulties or there are crazy things happening or shifts in the culture, Islam has something to say. Muslims should have something to say. And what I realized, like I um, had written a a while back for um, another publication and I wrote about the transgender issue and there were a lot of, there were a lot of people who <laughs> secretly um, they private messaged me, DM me, <laughs> non-Muslims and Muslims to thank me for writing this. So there's like there are people who see we see things happening in society, and we're afraid to speak up because again mm-hmm. we feel like we have to go along to get along, but we don't realize that there are actually people who are they wish that someone would speak up. They don't have the, um, I don't want to say courage because everyone, there are real consequences to speaking out about some of these issues. And alhamdulillah, I'm, I'm not in a position where that affects me, um, but it does affect a lot of people. If they were to speak up, they may lose their job or have issues at school or whatever. But there are people who want us to 
speak out. They want to know what Islam has to say. And unfortunately, not just us as Muslims, I think the society in general, they do put us in a box. You know, you don't see Muslims on TV or on the news unless it's to speak about a Muslim-specific issue. But I think that we have to assert ourselves and say that we have something to say. Islam has something to say about these issues. Islam has a wisdom to give to the society. And so, you know, I hope that in some way I, I offer that um, to have a kind of Islamic, Islamic foundation mm -hmm. to talk about issues happening in the world, as well as reflection. Because I think my, my blog basically focuses on the social commentary aspect and also the reflection aspect. And um, even recently, and hopefully I'll get to write about this soon, I was thinking about, you know, the way that these two things work together, because the social commentary is what do we say? How do we respond? How do we react? Whereas the reflection is internally what's happening for me. How do I center myself back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? How do I view everything, all of these crazy things that are happening that we want to give an give people Islamic wisdom and give them commentary from an Islamic perspective, we also have to internally have an understanding that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is in control. Mm -hmm. And that's the that's sort of the higher um, level of consciousness, if we can use that <laughs> term, that we want to have. We want to have a balance of both. So sometimes on the blog, it's purely talking about reflection and how we can, inshallah ta'ala, bring ourselves back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or continue on the path to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to be reminded um, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is in charge of our affairs. And on top of that, you know, continuing to remind ourselves and, and rectify our internal state, but also being able to engage with society, inshallah ta'ala. That's at least our intention. So last question. Um, there's often a perception uh, that uh, as a woman, it's it's difficult to seek knowledge. And I just I wanted to ask, like, looking back on this journey, um, do you feel like that's true? And and how has sacred knowledge kind of empowered you um, to be able to kind of speak the truth as you were talking about with your blog? Hamana, both excellent questions. With the first issue of knowledge being difficult for women to seek, I think that can be true. Um, I think it was a fortune to go to Jordan and to realize, oh, there are all these female shayu coming in now. Um, but there are a lot of programs and places that are still not necessarily open to women. Mm -hmm. And I remember once um, the, the same Sheikha that I was mentioning that I am always thinking about, you know, the stories that she told us and just different things, different advice she gave us. I remember her saying that, she used to take classes where she would have to sit by the door. They would like leave the door open for her so she could hear, but she would have to sit by the door because it was all men. So, and she's sad that she did that so that other women wouldn't have to, or less women would have to, right? So even though it is difficult, like, the door is not as open, I think, um, for women as it is for men. And, and that is in part, um, that's in part because of modesty, um, you know, because if they're male shayuk and male students, not every male shayuk, male shayuk is gonna feel comfortable with female students. And, you know, I, I respect, I think it's important to respect different people's um, levels of modesty. And it's not always misogyny, it's not always sexism. Um, so I think that it can be more difficult. But I also think that as women, at least when it comes to this issue, that we should be willing to go through the difficulty. I mean, seeking knowledge is going to be difficult anyway, right? Mm -hmm. um, but unfortunately, we do sometimes have to go through the extra difficulty. But what is it that you want to gain? Not everything is going to be easy that we that we prize, that we know has value. It's not always going to be easy. But if you can suffer through it, you know, through a reasonable, right? Um, then what you will bring back to your community 
is so valuable. And the more women who do it, the more women who don't have to do it because then there will be more female shiuk who are available to learn from. So, you know, I found that that story from her really powerful because it kind of reoriented me. And that, I think that's, that kind of goes back to what we were saying with social commentary versus, um, or, or rather along with reflection because our reaction, um, sort of politically the social commentary might want to have is this is unjust and it needs to change and women need more access and that's fair but also the internal reflection we should have is that this is difficult but it's also valuable and because I know it's valuable I'm going to do what I can to seek it so um and I would also say Hamnila there's so much available online right now and that kind of evens the playing field a lot that you can exhaust a lot of what is offered online before you even have to go um, to any particular program or country, etc. Um, for me, how this knowledge has empowered me, um, I think that knowledge, knowledge just is powerful, right? As soon as you know, you just feel like you can walk through the world a bit better. You feel more confident and I think um, with the knowledge that I learned and maybe especially seeing female shayuk and also learning about different women and their contribution to their religion it just it you feel like okay I'm standing in this long history like this sort of story that we've made up in some of, in some of our communities that a good Muslim woman is one who is quiet and you know doesn't talk too much and just gets married and has children <laughs> <laughs> you know it's just, it just isn't true like there's room for that there's absolutely room to dedicate your life to being a wife and a mother and there's nothing wrong with that but there's also room for being the scholar there's also room for being the activist there's also room for um building in your community there's room for so many things so that is so empowering to me to feel like i'm not doing something that is um going against the grain, that this is a part of our tradition for women's voices to be amplified and to be significant and an important part of the conversation. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time and, and for being so flexible and, and willing Thank to do you. this. <laughs> <laughs> Mishallah, thank you so much for reaching out. Hamina, I enjoyed this. Thank you. I really enjoyed talking to you. Um, stay safe, stay healthy, inshallah. And Thank you. Have you a good rest well. of the week. Me too. Assalamualaikum.